0: We are in Romans chapter 2. I know this gets a little bit difficult sometimes following where we are as we are on vacation and move from evening to morning, but uh, if you're with us in the evening, you know that we are in Romans chapter 2, continuing to work our way through what uh, has often been noted as a very difficult passage uh, that can be somewhat confusing for people. Uh, We saw that last time as we studied uh, verses 5 through 11 and the Lord's uh, declaration there that he will uh, render to each one according to their works. Um, And now we're going to see it again, I think, in this uh, passage where Paul begins to use language that will become very, very important and familiar in the book of Romans, but it's first introduced here in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 2. We, We have to remember, of course, that What Paul is doing in the book of Romans is setting forth the gospel of God, as he declares in the opening verses of this book, in the introduction, a gospel that was promised beforehand and concerns his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in this gospel, as we've seen in the central, really the central verses of the book, verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1 that Paul says he is not ashamed at all because it is the power of God unto salvation. And we learn that it is through this gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, immediately people, as they continue to read Romans, say, well, if this is such good news, why is it that Paul turns his attention immediately after those verses to talk about the wrath and judgment of God? We're still in that in chapter 2. Well, it's because the wrath and judgment of God are part of the gospel or the good news. You have to see it that way. The good news doesn't mean that everything that is said is what we would define as good. It simply means that God is declaring good news in the midst of his judgment. We must not only know what we are saved to, that is salvation and godliness, eternal life and justification, but we have to know what we're saved from. In fact, it's a necessity for anyone who comes to believe the good news of the gospel and receive eternal life. They have to know what they're being saved from. And that's exactly what Paul does here. You see, grace is all about the wrath of God as well as the grace of God, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And John Newton, in what is really my favorite verse of his most famous hymn, Amazing Grace, That second verse, perhaps you know it by heart as I do, grace that first taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved.'" You see, it's all of grace. We learn because of grace, we learn about the nature of who God is, that he is a holy God who requires absolute perfection if we are going to ever have hope of standing in his presence and it's his wrath that we come to know and fear because of our sin. It's grace that taught us that. And it's grace that will relieve those fears as well. And so how precious indeed did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And so we must remember that in this first major section of Romans, chapter 1, verse through chapter 3, verse the apostle is seeking to show that everyone is guilty before God and deserving of his wrath and judgment. That's part of the good news. Sounds contraindicated, contradicting, but it is part of the good news. In chapter 1, Paul is addressing primarily the Gentiles and showing how they are without excuse before God because they have suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. And what they know and what has been clearly made known to them about God in creation and that they understand, nonetheless, they did not honor him or give him thanks. For this reason, Paul says that God gave them over or gave them up to all kinds of impurity and dishonorable passions, as well as to a debased mind from which flow all of the kinds of sins that Paul speaks of in the latter part of chapter 1. It is a picture, isn't it? And we saw this of our own day in which we live and how God's judgment right now is being poured out upon our world, our nation, certainly because of our refusal to acknowledge God as God. And anywhere that happens, God's wrath, Paul says, is actively right now being poured out against mankind. Well, in chapter two, the apostle begins to address his own kindred according to the flesh, the Jews and their response to what Paul has argued concerning the Gentiles. Remember, they would have put thumbs up. Yes, Paul, you're absolutely right. Those Gentiles are horrible people, but not us. We have God. We're in covenant with God. We're in relationship with God. We're protected from God's judgment. That's not going to be true of us, they say. Well, Paul shows them that they are equally without excuse before God despite their relationship and appeal to that relationship as God's chosen people. They're full of hypocrisy, he says. You you condemn them from doing these th- for doing these things and yet you who know that these things are wrong do the very same things. You're hypocrites, he says. You're living on presumption. You're presuming that God would be kind to you or merciful and yet you forgot that his kindness in the past was to lead you to repentance and so you are presuming upon his favor, his goodness, his grace to you. And finally, he says, you're impenitent, you're hard-hearted. You're not listening to what God has said to you. And therefore, you are storing up for yourselves wrath for the day of judgment. You may remember that shift between 1 and 2. Chapter 1, it's all about the present active wrath of God being revealed now against all ungodliness. But Paul now, in chapter 2, begins to turn his attention to a day of wrath, the final day of wrath and of judgment. The last time we were together, Paul kept our focus on that great day and says that the Lord shows no partiality in judgment. So don't accuse him of favoritism. He's not, he doesn't play favorites. He is equitable in his judgment of all men and he will render, he says, to each one according to his works, to the Jew first and to the Gentile as well the judgment of god paul says is right it's true it's fair it's equitable it's not out of balance and so john murray in his wonderful commentary and very helpful commentary says this about that passage cuz remember there's a lot of confusion as paul's saying we're we're justified by works he's not He's saying that the judgment of works is part of what God does as he looks at those works at the end of the age that demonstrate whether we really are in Christ or not. And here's what Murray says, and it's very helpful. The distinction between judgment according to works and salvation according to works needs to be fully appreciated. The latter is entirely contrary to the gospel Paul preached is not implied in judgment according to works. Believers are justified by faith alone, and they are saved by grace alone. However, these two things must be added. They are never justified by a faith that is alone. And we must remember that we are saved to holiness and to good works, which God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them holiness manifests itself in good works. And good works as the evidence of faith and of salvation by grace are the criteria of judgment that the Lord uses, as Paul says here in Romans 2, 6. So a passage which may seem on the surface to be somewhat confusing to us who who cry the solas of the Reformation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. It's not contradicted here when Paul says he will render to each one on that day according to his works. So all of this leads to the section where we come to this morning, where Paul continues addressing mainly the Jews, but also the Gentiles, but now with respect to the law. And we'll talk about what this law is, And this is the very first time he introduces the law in the book of Romans. And that's important because we're going to see his emphasis all throughout this book on the law of God. And so stand with me as we read Romans chapter 2, verse 12 through 16, continuing to follow Paul's argument and praying God's blessing upon this, his word. Beginning in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All flesh is as the grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you, the author of this word by your spirit would bless it to our hearing, to our growth and understanding, that we might know ourselves to be, as Paul says, all of us, lawbreakers. But we might also know the glory of the gospel that Christ is the great law keeper and life is found in him alone. And so we pray this with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A few days ago, Beth Donaldson texted both pastors and asked us, and we have been, of course, uh, to pray for her father, who is in Indonesia. He travels often there. Uh, Of course, you know he served in Australia at one point. He and his wife were there for several years, and Uh, He is in Indonesia, and he's teaching the subject of hermeneutics to the churches and seminary there in Indonesia. What is hermeneutics? What is he teaching? And by the way, I should pass him, that's a great picture of your dad, love it. He's on a big poster. There's John Owen Butler with his beard pictured on the poster there for all to see. But there he is, one of our own PCA men there in Indonesia teaching the subject of hermeneutics. What is it? Hermeneutics is the art or science of interpreting the scripture. How do we interpret or understand the scriptures? And and really, we look, as our confession says, we really look to what the scriptures themselves says about interpreting the scriptures. God is his own interpreter, rightly understood. And so the scriptures instruct us and our understanding of context and language and all of those things instruct us as to how we are to rightly and properly understand the scriptures. Now for Paul, he was, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, a master interpreter by his own training, but also by the blessing of God in the spirit, a brilliant man Uh, was writing and is writing to the Romans with uh, some language and some terms that he's using that we need to rightly understand, rightly interpret. Uh, Two of those things that we've seen all throughout this study of Romans so far is this way in which Paul talks about the world. Remember how he talks about the world. There are just two. There is the Jew and the Gentile or the Greek. He uses those terms interchangeably. That was very common for him. So it's either the Jew or the Gentile. Now, what we need to understand is that when he does that, he is not speaking ethnically. That's not his focus. We, we say Jew and Gentile today, maybe, but we, we say the word Jew and people hear, well, the ethnic people of Israel, the people who live there now, the Jews who uh, have a long history. That's the way we normally speak about this. That's not the way Paul is speaking. When one of our missionaries, and I'll not say his name in case this causes any trouble, but when he came, you may remember in the evening, he spoke about the, the conflict, ongoing conflict in the Gaza Strip area, and he talks about the conflict between Jews and Palestinians Now, when he uses those terms, as he did, he's talking about ethnic Jews and Palestinians and their long, long history of uh, difficulty and division throughout that area of the world. And we rejoiced that night when he shared with us about the way in which the gospel was building bridges between these two otherwise uh, peoples that hated each other. And, and how wonderful it was to hear and rejoice in that great work that the Lord is doing there. But you see, when Paul speaks about Jews and Gentiles, he is speaking covenantally. He is speaking of Jews who are in relation to God by covenant, though unfaithful, and rejecting him and Gentiles who are not in relationship to God by covenant. They are apart from God and strangers to the promises. That's how he'll talk about them later in chapter 3 and chapter 9. And so when Paul uses this language, we have to be clear. He's talking covenantally. The Jew, with respect to their relationship to God by covenant versus the Gentile with respect to their being outside of the covenant. Remember, in the Old Covenant, even God was gracious to bring in the Gentile. Remember, there's several examples, right, Uh, throughout the Old Testament. So bring in the Gentile, but they were brought into the Jewish covenantal community and required to submit themselves to the law of Moses, etc., So that division is what's operating in Paul's mind. And as he writes Romans, he's talking about these two groups. And now he introduces in Romans chapter 2, verse 12 through 16, he continues to talk about the judgment, final judgment, the day of judgment. So the thoughts of 5 through 11 are continuing in 12 through 16. He has in mind, and you see it especially in verse 16, on that day when Christ will judge. He's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about these two groups now in relationship to, first time he mentions it, the law of God. Now the law of God simply defined, we could minimize it completely and say it's the Ten Commandments. Because that's the summary of the law. But the law that God gave to his people covenantally through Moses, that's the law he's talking about when he mentions it here in verses 12 through 16. So that is how we're to understand these verses. So if you followed, I trust you did, all of that, how Paul is speaking, these two groups, how they stand in relation to one another, and now in relation to the law. Let's go through the verses very quickly, very simply, and I think you'll clearly see what Paul is doing in these verses. He states the main premise. The summary statement is in verse 12. Let me read it again. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Who's he talking about? The Gentiles. They don't have the law when they sin without the law, I mean, it wasn't given to them, they will perish then without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, the Jew, who were covenantally related to God through the giving of the law and all that God did in the Old Testament to that, or for that people, they will be judged by the law. So let's look at the Gentile first, the one who has sinned without the law. What, what do they say? What is Paul anticipating that they're saying to him as he introduces this idea of law? Well, it's very clear what they're saying. Paul, you cannot say that God has a right to judge me because I have never been given the law. You can't hold me accountable to something that I have not known or been given. That's their argument. They claim ignorance in a summary way. And if you look at all commentators, they all say the same. It's it's the the claim of ignorance. We didn't know that these things were sins because God never gave us the law. We never knew. Now, Paul's point is very clear. When they sin without the law the standard of God's judgment will be without the law. Now, there's more he's going to say, so patiently wait as to what he will say. He'll say it in verses thirteen or 14 and 15. But for now, that's the sort of argument that he's anticipating. And he's telling them up front his main premise, Gentiles, you have no excuse. Now, they already knew they were without excuse because he just went through chapter 1. And chapter 1 has a great bearing on what he's going to say in 14 and 15. It's going to be very much the same thing. But that's what they say. Our claim is ignorance. We'll be fine on that day because we will say to God, you never told me the law. So you can't hold me accountable to it. Paul says, nope. The standard God's going to use is not the law. Not the law given to the Jew, But he's going to use a standard. We'll see it in a moment. Now, let's look at the Jew because he describes him in a similar but obviously different way. And all who have sinned under the law, that is, under that covenant relationship that God gave the law to Moses for this people. They were under the law. They heard the law read all the time, all of that, etc. They will claim that God has a special place because of that covenant with them, because after all, he did give them the law, that they will claim they stand in a place of privilege. We've seen that already. Paul's already talked a little bit about that argument. And therefore, we will avoid the judgment because after all, God's in a special relationship with us. That's their argument. And Paul's response in this initial premise is what? If you have sinned under the law... The standard of the law will be God's judgment. He will use the law. He will judge your works. He will render to you according to those works as measured by the law that he gave you. God's righteous judgment is upheld here again in this simple premise that he states in verse 12. Now, that's the premise. That sort of is the overarching argument. You can sort of see where Paul is going, but there's still some things that Paul has to say. He has to say it clearly to both Jew and Gentile. And what he does is because he's talking to the Jew here, primarily in chapter 2, and really through here, through the end of chapter 3, he's really focusing on the Jew. He's already dealt with the Gentile in chapter 1. But he's really focusing on the Jew here. And he says to the Jew first, he speaks to them first in verse 13. And look at what he says. This is God's just judgment of the Jew now. So his premise is stated. Now he supports his premise with respect to the Jew first. Remember, it's always Jew first, Gentile second. For it is not, verse 13, the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, you know exactly what Paul's doing. Paul is saying every Sabbath they hear the law read. Every Sabbath, it's read. The law is read. In fact, and, and, and we've not taken this practice, but there's much to commend it, and perhaps in the future we would But in a lot of Reformed churches, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are read every single service. There's a reason for that. It's because it sets before the people the standard of God's judgment, reminding us that we cannot possibly keep it, we fall short always, and pointing us ultimately to Christ. Well, Paul is saying that to them. You know, you hear it all the time. There is no benefit, he says, that as you hear the law read every Sabbath as the Lord had commanded, that you will innately or just suddenly benefit from it. You must do it. You must put it into practice. You don't have to go far in the Old Testament to find out many places where the Lord says this. The most famous would be in Deuteronomy in chapter 6, Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your home and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You shall do them. Oh, that was the command, to do them all. It it wasn't just hear them, it was put them into practice. You were called not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the law that he had given them. And so he's beginning to show how it is that God's judgment will be rendered against the Jew. It's because all they were were hearers. Pharisees, famous, were just hearers of the law. They could recite it better than probably most in their day. They were revered and respected rightly because they knew the law of God. They didn't do it or put it into practice. And Jesus called them short on that every time he interacted with them because they were merely hearers. It's what James says, isn't it? In James chapter 1, Elder Frolio will be leading you through James this week, continuing his study on Wednesdays when I'm not present. In James chapter 1, I'm not sure he's here yet, but in 22 through 26, James says very clearly, Be ye doers of the word and not merely hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, great phrase, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see the point Paul is making and how easily it is to relate to what he says. You see, we often struggle with being hearers of the law only. Many of us have Bible verses memorized. Lee Phil is asking for God to bless her to memorize the word. I know Lee well enough to know it's not enough for her just to memorize it. She wants to live it out because that's what we're called to do. But it's easy. It's easy to be hearers of the law or the word of God only. And Paul says, okay, you're under the law. That's the standard of God's judgment. You will therefore be judged by how you do the law, how you live out that law. You will be judged according to knowledge. They knew what the Lord had commanded, and yet they disobeyed him. Not only in neglecting to do what God commanded, but in doing those horrific, abominable things, idolatry, etc that all the prophets speak of. And so they were guilty before God. That's the standard God will use. You have the law, Jew. You're in covenant relationship with God. By his mercy alone, he gave you his law. That's the standard. You're only hearers. You're not doers. Therefore, you stand guilty before God. Now, to be careful, and this is very important to say, when Paul says "But the doers of the law who will be justified, he is not saying, that it is even possible to be justified by the works of the law. What does God require? Perfection. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The law shows that standard. It is that mirror, as James says, of the perfections of our God. We look at the law to see the perfections of our God And in those perfections, we see our imperfections. He is not saying that it's possible if you just obey the law that you'll be justified by it. His whole point in Romans will absolutely discount that view. But here he's just operating with the Jew who comes and says, we're in special relationship. We have a covenant with God. He gave us the law, the promises. We're okay in the day of judgment. Paul says, nope, you're not. Because all you're doing is listening, hearing, and you're not putting into action. God's standard is perfection. You fail at that point. God will judge you according to that standard. And so Paul deals with the Jew in his argument. And he says, don't rest in this relationship that you have or perceive that you have. Because God's justice, his judgment is just. It is righteous altogether. If you are going to be justified by the keeping of the law, it has to be perfect, perpetual, never-ending obedience. And that for sinners like us is absolutely impossible. And that's why we point and run to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see in verse 13 then how he deals with the Jew first. He's under the law. Well, what about the Gentile? That's in 14 and 15. These verses can get somewhat convoluted, somewhat difficult to follow, but this is God's just judgment of the Gentile. What are the Gentiles responding? Again, you can't judge me, Paul, and God can't judge me by that law because he never gave it to me. I don't know it, and therefore you can't hold me accountable. Notice what Paul says brilliantly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For when Gentiles, he says, rightly acknowledged, who do not have the law, who, follow carefully, nonetheless, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. Now, one commentator said... Don't think of law unto yourselves, which means you can do whatever you want. That's not what he means. What he means is that when they do what the law requires, they do it by nature, they prove that they know the law. That's what he's saying. They are proving that they know at least something of the law by nature or by creation this is the and this is a huge subject you can move into on your own but if you if you looked up this idea of of this this natural sort of revelation that we talked about in in Romans chapter 1 this idea that by nature God has revealed himself, his character, what is right and wrong, and mankind knows it by nature being created in the image of God. This natural law kind of understanding is what Paul is talking about here. Gentiles, I know you haven't been given the law, he says, but you do the things of the law by nature being created in the image of God, thereby proving... That you have some awareness of God and his law, what is right and wrong. Every society that has ever existed on the face of the earth throughout all of history has had mores and standards, has rejected things and declared things to be right or wrong. Every society, always down through history. What accounts for that? Well, what accounts for that is that God has created man in his own image. And he has, through the working of the law, and notice the language that Paul says, right? In verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, he doesn't say, very important, he doesn't say that the law is written on their hearts. That's going to be reserved for something else. What he says is this, that the working of the law... The way the law works, what it itself points to, is written on our hearts by our natural connection, if you will, to God as being created in his image and his likeness. He's very careful in his language. So by their behavior and their adherence to what they know and will confess is either right or wrong, they prove that they know by nature, by creation, what God requires. And that is the standard that God will use, Paul says. He will judge them by that standard, what they already know to be true. That immediately should sound exactly like Romans chapter 1. In creation, God revealed himself, made himself known, so that every person understands there is a God. Every person understands what is right and wrong by virtue of being created in the image of God. But what do they do? They suppress it. They push it down. They reject it. And they deny it. So Paul says no. God is not unfair. He is not going to take the law revealed to the Jew, not given to the Gentile. He's not going to use that as the standard. He's going to judge you based on what you already yourself know by virtue of being created in the image of God. This past week, I heard an interview, perhaps you did too, uh, between an interviewer and a the very famous, infamous Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, perhaps you've saw this. It made news, at least on some of the sort of things that I'd look at. And they were talking about this issue today where there is so much confusion about sex and gender. And I was really shocked, and it's, it proves to me in, in a s- small way, but, but I think there are other things that Richard Dawkins has said that prove to me in greater ways that what Paul says here is true. But this is what the interview, very brief, he says, what's the answer, the interviewer to Richard Dawkins, what's, what's the answer to this confusion and this bullying that's going on today about gender, you know, surgeries and, and forcing these things and there being 172 different genders? What's, what's the answer? Listen to what Dawkins says. It's, it's fascinating. He says the answer is science. He says there are only two sexes. You can talk about gender if you want, if you wish. That is a subjective thing. And people can have whatever opinion that they want. But when we're talking facts, he says, it's science. There's only two sexes. But the interviewer says, when people say there are 100 genders, I am not interested in that. As a biologist, there are two sexes, and that is all there is to it. In my mind, I'm saying, good for you, Richard Dawkins. But I bet you, Richard Dawkins, you don't understand why you've said what you just said. It's because innate within you, despite that you have suppressed God, failed to acknowledge him as God, you know, uh, wickedly spoke against God, denied his existence, will not give him thanks, all of those things of Romans chapter 1, you still know the truth. And you can't help but speak it when you're confronted with it. You see, that's what Paul's talking about. You know it. You know the truth. It's there by nature. He says, you don't have the law. I understand that. But you do have a law. The workings of the law are within you, in your hearts. Your conscience actually bears witness. You can say what's right and wrong. You corner Richard Dawkins and ask him to tell you if murder is right. he will say, no, murder's wrong. Why does he do that? Because there's the working of the law in him. And he hasn't yet suppressed it, at least fully their conflicting thoughts, accuse them or even excuse them. They go back and forth. They, they are excused in some of their behaviors by their views according to this law. They are accused in their conscience according to this law. There's guilt, there's shame, there's all of these things. And Paul says to the Gentile, okay, it's not going to be by the law. What you know to be true. By their behavior, they prove that God has revealed to them the workings of the law and they will be held accountable to it. And Paul says to end it all. He says on that day, remember that's the day of judgment, according to my gospel, God will judge the secret thoughts or the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's bringing it all to an end here, at least in this paragraph. He's saying listen, there's coming a day. This is how he's going to do it, how he's going to judge, his judgments is, her judgments are fair. They are equitable. They're not showing any favoritism at all. He will judge and render to each man according to his works. He will do it by the law for those who are under the law. He will do it by this expression of the natural law that lives within all men by virtue of their creation. His judgments are just, he says, and all men are without excuse. Now, Matthew Henry has something interesting as we close out this study this morning before making application. He says this with regard to verse 16. He says, some people, and I agree, refer to these words according to my gospel, as Paul says, to what he says of the day of judgment. And and I think that goes back to the beginning, doesn't it? The gospel includes the proclamation of the wrath of God. It has to. We have to know what we're being saved from. There will be a day of judgment according as I have in my preaching often told you, he says. And that will be a day of the final judgment, both of Jews and Gentiles. It is good for us to be acquainted with what is revealed concerning that day. There is a day, Henry says, for a general judgment. The day, the great day, his day that is coming. The judgment of that day will be put into the hands of Jesus Christ. The Bible makes that clear. God will judge by Jesus Christ. It will be part of the reward of his humiliation. Nothing speaks more terror to sinners or more comfort to saints than to know this, that Christ will be the judge. You see what he did there? Nothing speaks either such terror to sinners or such comfort to believers than to know that Christ has been appointed the judge. The secrets of men shall then be judged. Secret services shall then be rewarded. Secret sins shall then be punished. Hidden things shall be brought to light. That will be the great discovering day when that which is now done in corners and in the dark shall be proclaimed to the whole world. God will bring everything to light. He will judge by a standard that is righteous and just regardless of your Arguments, either Jew or Gentile, all are without excuse. That's his point in Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20. Everyone is left with their hands on their mouths, as it was true of Job, cannot respond or say a thing because God's judgment is just. Well, we end as we transition to the Lord's table to say, as we so often do, and so rightly, that the answer to both Jew and Gentile is found in Jesus. According to the good news of the gospel, Paul says, and so we end indeed where we began. The gospel reveals both the grace of God and the judgment of God. They come together at the cross of Christ, the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, the pouring out his wrath because of our unrighteousness, and the giving of a righteousness which is not ours. And God told his people this. The very people with whom he entered into covenant, in the Old Covenant, and the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham and all the way through, it was to that people that God spoke by his prophets as he was bringing his wrath upon Jerusalem and upon his people for their wickedness and their sins. He says, a new day is coming, he says, A glorious, glorious new day. We read it earlier in Ezekiel 11. We read it in Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. That's different than what he says about the Gentiles, that they have the working of the law. This is the law of God that he writes on our hearts, now hearts of flesh, no longer hearts of stone. Now the law is truly written on the hearts of his people, Jew and Gentile alike. Remember, Israel now in the prophets is broadened. It becomes not an ethnic people in covenant. It becomes the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul makes that argument very clear in Ephesians and other places The standard of our perfection has been met in Christ, who kept the law perfectly, has won for us a righteousness we could never win for ourselves, and who now lives, the Bible says, by his spirit within us, enabling us now, not true before, to delight in the keeping of his law, to seek out ways in which we can be obedient to the glory and honor of his name, To the Jew, Paul says in these verses, as he will throughout all of Romans, he will say you need to look to Christ, not not to your relationship by covenant throughout history to God, presuming upon his favor and, and believing that you have no place in the judgment. No, he says, you need to look to Christ. You will never keep the law perfectly, which you must You cannot merely claim to have a special place with God. To the Gentile, Paul says, look to Christ. You cannot claim ignorance on that great day. You and I this morning cannot say to God, but I never knew. Our children, we've gotten away with that with our parents. I just didn't know or I didn't remember. I forgot that we'll not stand on the day of judgment. So look to Christ and to all who are here this morning. Where are within the sound of my words and my voice, look to Christ. We are ambassadors for him. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you, we beg you, Paul says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father Paul, could not, under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, be more clear to all of us here today, to the Jew of his own day, to the Gentile of his own day, you have committed all judgment into the hand of your Son, and how we rejoice that that great judge on that great day is also our Savior. And through him and the shedding of his blood, the giving of his life, the living of his life, he has won for us a salvation which can never be taken away, and from which we can never be separated. And so we rejoice in him alone. We glory in Christ alone. We glory not in who we know, in this world or in any other world. We glory in knowing you through Christ. We rejoice in all that you have done for us and give you thanks even now as we come to this table. And we pray your blessing upon all that we do now in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would the elders please... Come forward and take your place, if you would. I debated sort of doing this, but I'm going to do it because I think it's fitting and right. So I'm going to welcome you lawbreakers to the table. (laughs) Because we're all breakers of the law, aren't we? We are. That's why we come to this table. That's why we need it. We are by nature breakers and violators of God's commandments, his covenant. Uh, We have been unfaithful to him. And yet this table is spread for those like us who sincerely repent of that unfaithfulness and the breaking of his law. And who look anew and afresh to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a table for lawbreakers. It's never been a table for perfection. We can't ever be perfect, right? We can't ever live up to the standard and the measure that God requires. And so we come always as imperfect sinners, saved by grace, to a Savior who is our judge but has already rendered his judgment through the giving of his life for us. So Let me say again, welcome to you who are lawbreakers, to this table of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you don't delight in your lawbreaking, and so let me remind you, this is not a table for those who have no part of Christ. This is not for those who are outside of him, who have no knowledge of him at all. So if you're not a believer and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, you ought not to come to this table unless you eat judgment and drink judgment to yourself. It's also not for those who may outwardly profess, kind of like what the Jew of Paul's day did. We're in relationship with God. We've got this covenant thing going on. And we know that we're secure and safe because of that. If you are coming to this table with that mindset, in other words, I've professed faith in Jesus, but really I'm not living in any way that would identify me as a believer then you ought not to come as well, but repent. Remember, the goodness of God, we saw this last time, the goodness of God is designed to lead us to repentance. And so you ought to repent and not come, lest you as well eat judgment to yourself. It's not for our covenant children even, uh, who have not yet professed their faith in Jesus. We encourage you, as the Lord continues to do a work in your life, if you've not yet professed faith, that you would come Seek out the elders, talk to us as pastors or elders and say I'd like to come and profess my faith so that I might come to this table as well. But it is for the rest of us who struggle, who don't always obey God, uh, who sin daily and yet to whom God has given the grace of repentance that we might be renewed as we come seeking the forgiveness of our sins and seeking all that Christ has for us here, the very strength that we need to follow him. So listen to these words as I read them from the Apostle Paul. I received, he wrote, from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you join me as we pray and get these elements aside? Let's pray. Our Father, as we come now to this table at the invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ, before whom even now we are seated in his presence, the Spirit lifting us up, as it were, into the very presence of your throne and before the table spread before us by our Lord Jesus Christ. We come in humility. We come in repentance, acknowledging our sins and declaring that we have no right to be at this place because we are lawbreakers. We are all of those who violate your commandments. We do not do the things that we ought to do. But Father, we know that you delight to show mercy and compassion. We know that your goodness is designed to draw us to yourself and to lead us to repentance. And so we confess our sins, even in these quiet moments, as we quietly confess our sins. We would pray that in Him you would hear our prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would, for the sake of Christ, have mercy upon us, cleanse us from all of our sins. Renew us inwardly, and by this means that you have appointed the gospel in picture form set before us on this table, would you so bless your word and all the means of your grace to us so that we would be renewed inwardly and that our desire to follow you would ever increase, to be obedient to you would grow, to delight in your law, Father, is our desire. And so bless us through this means of grace, even as we set apart in prayer these elements, which are common. And as we eat them, they become one with our physical bodies and will bring nourishment and strength. So may we, through these, feed upon Christ by faith and receive all that you have given to us in him. We ask this with great thanksgiving and your blessing upon all that we do now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, again, as he sat with his disciples at that last meal, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat all of you. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. as I ministering in his name, say to you, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord Jesus, on that same night in which he was betrayed and after the meal was ended, he took one of the cups and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said, take and drink all of you. This is a cup of the new and everlasting covenant shed in my blood for the remission or the forgiveness of the sins of many. Drink all of you in remembrance of me. remind you that as we partake, we partake together. The outer rings are grape juice, the inner rings are wine. Indeed, this is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant shed in the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Hear Him, as I say to you. Take and drink all of you in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Our Father, how could we ever say thank you for all that you have done for us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is you who tell us how it is that we can say thank you. It is by living lives of obedience to the glory and honor of your name. And how we praise you and thank you that we are able to do that by the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us and by the blessing of the means of this grace that you have given to us in Christ. And so bless all that we have done now and all that we have done in this service and throughout this day to our growth in Jesus and to our obedience to him. We thank you and we praise you for this and all things that are ours in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. As we stand together and conclude our service in the singing of this wonderful hymn amidst us, our beloved stands. As we are still before the Lord and his table, let us stand and sing 427. now receive the lord's blessing his benediction may the grace of our lord and savior jesus christ and the love of god our heavenly father and the fellowship and communion of the holy spirit be with you all amen amen